Hello, and welcome to the Folklore Podcast Book Club. The strand of the Folklore Podcast where we examine books of interest to fans of folklore and chat with their authors. From classical myth to modern literature, the figure of the god Pan has fascinated and terrified the Western imagination. Panic is the name given to the peculiar feeling we experience in his presence. But the ways in which Pan has been imagined have varied wildly, fitting for a god whose name the ancients confused with the Greek word for all. Part goat and part man, Pan bridges the divide between the human and animal worlds. At times he is a dangerous and destabilising force, at other times a representation of fertility and renewal. His portrayals reveal shifting anxieties about our own animal impulses and our relationship to nature. In his book, Pan, The Great God's Modern Return, published by Reaction Books, Paul Robichaud explores the various ways that Pan has been imagined through the centuries, tracing his development from ancient myths through early modern Europe and into the present day. Paul is Professor and Chair of English at Albert Magnus College, New Haven, Connecticut, and he joined book reviewer Hilary Wilson recently to discuss the subject of Pan. Yeah, so hi, this is Hilary Wilson with the Folklore Podcast. I'm here with Paul Robichaud to talk about his book about Pan. Welcome. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Uh, it's an absolutely wonderful book. I'm a big fan of just about everything that Reaction has put out. So I wanted to ask you, you know, how did you first become interested in Pan? Yeah, um, I think uh, I think my interest really goes back um, to uh, when I was growing up, and one of my favorite books growing up was uh, Kenneth Graham's *The Wind in the Willows*, and um, *The Piper at the Gates of Dawn* was for me the kind of the most magical part of that book, and it was what I always looked forward to. Um, so that was that was a big part of my my childhood reading, and uh, and then as as a teenager. Uh, in high school, I read um, Paul Hawkins' the, the Magic of Findhorn, which is about a uh, kind of new age community that uh, was founded in Scotland. And part of the book is about um, a figure named Robert Ogilvie Crombie, who was um, kind of a mystic in his own way. And he had uh, uh, a number of encounters uh, with Pan and uh, Pan offered him some insight into how the, uh, the gardens they grew uh, at Findhorn could uh, flourish even more by kind of cooperating with the uh, the spirit world that uh, Pan presided over, um, and and so that you know that was sort of my early interest, um, and uh, the the book sort of came about because I was reading um, I was reading some D. H. Lawrence, um, the modern English novelist, and um, I read Pan in America, and it got me thinking back about you know about pan and um my original plan was to to kind of explore pan in modern literature um because he started to turn up in unexpected places but um it became clear that there's there's just a lot more to tell there like there's a much bigger story to tell uh, about pan so so that's what led me to to write the book and pan is a rather unusual figure when it comes to the greek pantheon um, you mentioned in the book that 
although there are many creation stories for you know, the Greek pantheon in general, that Pan has a truly astonishing amount of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he doesn't, he really doesn't fit well uh, with the Greek pantheon. I mean, he's not, um, so he's not one of the 12 Olympians. He's, um, even Dionysus manages to get in uh, with the <laughs> Olympians. And he's kind of the closest to Pan in, in, in some ways. But, uh, but yeah, Pan is never part of that group. And um, the, the Greeks really kind of tied themselves in knots trying to figure out, you know, okay, where did he come from and, and who were his parents? Um, and, and one of the interesting things about they're trying to figure out who his parents were was they were fairly certain who the father was early on. They, they sort of settled on Hermes as the most likely candidate, although um, other, other Greek sources identified Kronos, who was the father of all the Greek gods, as his father. And, and this, this right away kind of raised the question of where Pan fits in the, the story of the Greek gods, because he's either contemporary with Zeus or he comes later on. He's like the next generation down. But most writers felt Hermes was the most likely. Um, where it gets very confusing is with Pan's mother, right? And usually this is usually this is the, the opposite problem. We know who the mother is, but we might not be sure who, who the father is. But the Greeks had a lot of trouble agreeing uh, about this. And um, they identified various nymphs, um, many of whom, you know, we don't know very much about. Um, Callisto was one. She's, she's the nymph who became a bear. Um, and another candidate was a nymph named Penelope, who was the daughter of um, an oak god. Um, but the Greeks confused her with the Penelope, who was Odysseus's wife, and they thought maybe uh, Pan had, had acquired his monstrous appearance because she had been unfaithful to Odysseus while mm. he was away. And in fact, Pan had 108 uh, different fathers. Um, and, <laughs> and, so, and so it goes. Um, and in the end, the, uh, an, early, an early poem about Ham, uh, Pan, uh, the Homeric hymn uh, to Pan, um, identified uh, uh, Hermes as his father and um, uh, a nymph as, as his mother. And he's brought up into Olympus, and the gods are delighted because he looks so weird because he's got goat legs and little horns. Um, and Dionysus laughs and he takes the child from Hermes and welcomes him there. And they use this as an explanation for his name because the name uh, Pan is uh, sounds like the same word as the, the Greeks used for all. And so okay. he made all the gods laugh. And so this was one of many explanations for, for his name as well. Yeah, and there were a lot of different ideas about his name and um, monikers that he took on, weren't there? Yeah, he acquired, um, he acquired a lot of different titles uh, to kind of represent different aspects of himself. Mm -hmm. So uh, he was known, you know, as the deliverer or uh, as a, this sort of crooked backed. And some of these titles are a little mysterious. Um, his, his name, um, the deliverer or liberator uh, comes from um, an episode at a, a Greek city in Trozen where he, there was a plague and he appeared in a dream and he said, you know, I just pray to me and everyone will be cured of the plague. And so he, he sort of delivered the city of this, um, this plague, but um, his name is most likely connected to an earlier uh, 
word uh, meaning pasture. Mm. And that would sort of fit with his, you know, goat-like appearance and, and his early role, uh, which was protecting sheep um, in, in Arcadia. Um, but because the word was so similar to uh, this other Greek word, which is accented slightly differently, uh, pan meaning all, um, the ancient Greeks very, very quickly decided that he was in some sense, the God of all as well. So he has this kind of dual, dual identity um, going back to ancient times. Now that's interesting too, because of his appearance being you know, part man and part animal. You know, the idea of him encompassing all seems a little bit natural you know, being man's relationship to the uh, natural world. Yeah, right. He, so he's a God, but he's, he looks half human and he looks half animal. And he's also thought of as being this, this God of all this, uh, this nature God, really, he's, he's identified as a nature God. And this for the Greeks who, you know, we know were kind of philosophical in the way they looked at things. Nature for the Greeks was certainly what we think of as nature, but but kind of extended into the, really the whole natural world, the cosmos. Mm-hmm. And so Pan um, is is really the god of 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 all the whole cosmos, um, in fact. And he's he's talked about that way in uh, a poem from later antiquity, um, another hymn uh, called the Orphic Hymn. Uh, to Pan, where he's he's the god of of the whole cosmos, um, as well as you know what we understand as the natural world, and he's a real power and force that you know can be prayed to, but may also need to be appeased as well. Uh, which uh, put everybody in a little bit of difficulty when it was reported that he died. Yes, <laughs> right. He's one. He's one of the. He, he's one of several gods who are reported to have died. But he's he's the only god who dies and doesn't come back. In other words, he stays dead. So Dionysus, for example, dies and, and is resurrected. Osiris is torn into pieces and is reassembled. Um, but Pan dies and, um, at least from one point of view in the ancient world, stays dead. Um, so the, the story there was that uh, and this happened in the the realm of Tiberius, or, or the, the sorry, the reign of Tiberius. Uh, a sailor uh, overheard a voice that cried out, uh, "Tamas!" That was the name of the the sailor. Great Pan is dead, and this was reported to the emperor Tiberius, who was rather concerned uh, to hear that a god had died, and his uh, counselors or wise men. Um, sent out an investigation and uh, they confirmed that, that this had happened. Um, and so the story just became circulated and it's reported by Plutarch, uh, the ancient writer, although a century later, um, a, a Greek, tra- essentially a Greek travel writer, he toured around Greece and wrote all about uh, what he saw there. Uh, Pausanias uh, reported that um, in fact, Pan was still being worshiped um, and in his native uh, Arcadia, people still heard his pipes playing in, in the woods. But the death of Pan um, became a, a story that fascinated uh, later readers and writers. And um, Christians uh, looked at the story in different ways. They tended to view the gods as demons mm-hmm. uh, who were sort of deceiving mankind. Um, and so his death was sometimes taken as a metaphor for the death of the pagan world or the triumph of Christ. But others, um, uh, other Christian writers, in fact, took the opposite view and, and thought that Pan was in some way identical with Christ and that it was 
kind of uh, a sort of pagan prefiguring in some way of the crucifixion. So Pan also gets identified um, with Christ um, in, in a kind of tradition that, that goes right through uh, the Renaissance and uh, the 17th century with the writer, uh, the English poet, John Milton, for example. Mm-hmm. So there's all these interesting branchings off um, over time from uh, these ancient stories, which are interpreted and understood in different ways, um, which makes Pan really fascinating because he's, he's complex. He's hard to, to pin down um, to just one thing. Yeah, so in some ways it's all the different interpretations of him that have made the interpretation of his name, meaning all be accurate. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, right. So he's kind of, he, he is everything to everybody uh, in some ways, but um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's uh, very strange that he was viewed as similar or even literally being Christ when so many people know of him now as the image that the devil has been referenced as. Yeah. um, Yeah. That was, that was one, one of the things I found um, interesting to, to kind of look back at because we have this figure of Pan and he's got his goat legs and he's got horns and we have the popular image of the devil today who also typically has goat feet and, and horns. Um, and Pan was understood by some, uh, some Christian writers as, as being demonic in the ancient mm-hmm. world. So uh, for example, there's uh, an ancient uh, church historian named Eusebius, and he retells uh, a story from a pagan writer named Porphyry, where uh, Pan appears to some woodcutters and he freezes them immediately and they, they die. Um, and Eusebius, uh, says that this shows you he's an evil demonic kind of power but there's not um there's not much connection made between pan and uh this idea of evil really until uh much later in the 19th century and um uh, a french occultist uh uh named uh levi um writes a book where he creates a figure known as baphomet who's very popular uh, occult image and he's he's pan he's recognizably pan but uh pan has been altered to be given um female breasts and he has a shield in front of him and there's a torch between his horns um and lfs levi in his description of this figure says you know essentially it's a it's a symbol of wisdom it's identical with with pan it's identical with uh, baphomet who in the 19th century was um identified as a kind of idol that the Knights Templar had worshipped and so on. But this figure of Baphomet um, is circulated again and again all through different books about the occult and uh, occult-themed films, horror movies and things. And so this image of the devil being in some sense identical with this kind of pan-like figure really gets imprinted. Uh, I think, in, in the public imagination. But what's interesting uh, is when you go past the 19th century and you start looking at representations of the devil, he doesn't look very much like Pan. I mean, sometimes you'll see him with goat feet or something like that, but he's more often in the Middle Ages, for example, portrayed as a kind of assemblage of mismatching um, animal parts. He's, he, he's a bit more like a kind of Frankenstein's monster where you might have you know, the tail that looks like a snake and some bat's wings and shaggy legs and, and, and so on. And um, 
and it's a very different image from from what we know of Pan. So, um, so I think although it it seems like this idea that um, the the early Christians identified Pan with the devil to kind of weed ordinary pagans away from from worshiping him, it seems like that makes some sense um, until we sort of look at how the devil was portrayed and and thought of and written about. Um, and that seems to be a much more recent uh, phenomenon. In fact. Yeah, that was one of the you know, more surprising things from the book. Yeah, I had um, interviewed Thomas Honegger um, last year, and so many of the depictions of the devil in the medieval ages were just, like you were saying, they were assemblages of animals. They were draconic, essentially. You know, you'd recognize Satan because he would have scales. And then all of a sudden, he becomes a shaggy goat figure, <laughs> which... Right. Yeah. It's just strange. I, I found it really interesting that the goats were far more associated with lust, you know, than they were with anything outright dem- demoniacal or you know anything like that. Because then you have this idea that Pan is lust you know, to a certain extent, but not satanic. <laughs> yeah, um, and I think the. Right, and the the goat the goat aspect of Pan was was associated with less going back to the to the ancient world as well. Goats, uh, I guess, are rather randy animals, and uh, so for the ancients, they, that seemed like a fitting symbol. Um, but the yeah, Satan um, Satan kind of Satan had reptilian associations, I think, because of the the Bible, where he, mm-hmm. he appears in Eden as a serpent. So it kind of made some sense for him to be reptilian. And one thing I wonder about. Um, is in the 19th century, as we know, you know, the Victorians had a very um, stern attitude uh, towards human sexuality and uh, was a source of temptation and sin um, outside of marriage and in Victorian culture. And um, I can't help but wonder if uh, some of those attitudes shaped the way the Victorians imagined the devil as being really closely connected with with lust, with sexual desire and things like that. And if that played some role um, in the shifting perception of, of the devil's appearance. That was something that I was curious about when I was reading your book as well, um, because you had written about how Pan had become almost a coded way for writers to talk about their own sexuality, you know, in particular, you know, homosexual men. So then if that was being picked up in more modern culture, it would make sense for those sensibilities to then begin to cast uh, Pan in a more negative light. Yeah. Um, and this was, uh, this was particularly true uh, starting in the 1890s where um, writers like Oscar Wilde, for example, uh, sort of celebrate Pan um, as um, the embodiment of, of, of freedom, of you know, a kind of liberated uh, sensibility. Um, and uh, Pan's own sexuality was uh, kind of ambiguous in, in the ancient world. I mean, there's there's depictions of him and stories of him uh, attempting to seduce or, or rape nymphs who are always female. But um, there's also an ancient uh, story about uh, Pan attempting to... Uh, seduce a, a, a young shepherd, a, a young man. Um, and, and that is actually depicted on um, an ancient Greek vase, uh, for example. So Pan had this association with um, 
uh, gay desire as well as sort of straight desire going back to the ancient world. And um, for, for writers like Wilde and, and other decadent writers, he, he kind of symbolized uh, a sort of forbidden uh, sexuality, but also embodied the freedom of, of that as well. Um, so that, that made him a popular figure um, in the decades around 1890 to about 1910. And especially later for you know writers like Alistair Crowley, who decided to pick up on that image and amplify it even more. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, for for Alistair Crowley, um, the that whole kind of literary cultural world of Pan is very very much in the background uh, for him. And and so he, he's you know he's familiar with with the older traditions, I think of, of Pan, but it, it is filtered through, um, filtered through that world of, of the 1890s where, you know, Pan is uh, to some extent symbolic of forbidden desire and perhaps forbidden practices as, as well. Definitely. Yeah. I found that, um, you know, I found that entire idea of the, you know, modern occult revival of Pan worship and, or Pan, not not exactly worship, but invocations. Um, extremely interesting, because although there is that you know, aspect of forbidden desire of uh, the darker side of Pan, so much of it was focused more on the natural world, you know, as a whole. Um, like you were talking about earlier, with Pan's helpful gardening tips. <laughs> right, Pan's helpful gardening tips. Right, um, and and yet there was there was this other side of Pan. Um, if we think back to um, another writer uh, from the 1890s, Arthur Mackin and his story, The Great God Pan. Um, and that is tapping into another very ancient tradition regarding Pan. Pan is a source of terror. Um, and in the ancient world, uh, the main thing Pan was known for was inspiring terror uh, you knew Pan was present if you were walking through the, the forest and you were suddenly overcome by a sense of dread or terror, or your animals were, you know, your animals suddenly bolt. Well, it's because Pan is is there inspiring them, maybe mischievously, uh, with a sense of, of fear. Um, but, you know, Mackin's Pan is both the kind of cosmic Pan, he's a, he, he's a god sort of beyond everything, something... Mackin doesn't use this word, but there's something kind of extra dimensional about him, you know, and um, he's brought into this world and um, his, um, his avatar is representative in the world um, engages in all kinds of unspeakable uh, practices, which, um, you know, Victorians couldn't write about, but might, might have imagined. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, he's represented by a woman, in fact. So, you know, again, there's this kind of, uh, kind of exploration of of gender and gender identities there helen vaughn is the the figure in the great god pan who is um in some sense pan's daughter and um she embodies all kinds of terrifying perversions and murderous impulses um and so you have on the one hand these very idyllic portrayals of pan like the piper at the gates of dawn and kenneth graham's novel and then you have this other uh tradition of portraying Pan as a source of terror and the occult revival 
sometimes draws a bit of, on both, I think. I mean, being the occult, I think there's definitely attraction, an attraction to that darker, more powerful side of Pan. But, um, but the notion of, of Pan as, uh, as a benevolent god, or at least potentially benevolent uh, god, and, and a god of nature, um, really becomes integrated into uh, modern witchcraft as well. One of the things that um, I was thinking about, I think it was in Ogilvy's accounts of meeting Pan. He mentioned that the challenge was to be able to look upon Pan and not be afraid, you know, to see that face and not run in terror. And if you were able to do that, then Pan would continue to work with you. And that was something that other writers also mentioned in meeting with Pan in their visions yeah uh right so right so for ogilvy the uh the terror that pan inspires is kind of it's not kind of the be all and end all of pan but it's it's kind of a test it's really an initiatory sort of test um and ogilvy is an interesting uh case because he has these stories that he sort of circulated publicly in lectures that were recorded um uh, and uh, and distributed, um, but a few years ago, uh, 2013, I think his his private journals were published. His kind of magical journals, where he recorded his practices and uh, experiences and so on. And what's fascinating looking at them is that, far from sort of exaggerating his accounts for a public audience, he in fact uh, kept a lot a lot of it to himself. Um, and a lot of his private experiences were ones where. Uh, for example, Pan uh, might appear to him in the form of a snake and, or a serpent and try to uh, squeeze him and frighten him in some ways. And there are these repeated examples in these sorts of visionary experiences he records where um, Pan is, is temp- testing him by trying to frighten him. And as he's able to show that he's not really afraid of Pan, he really wants to know Pan and uh, learn from him, um, he, he's able to receive you know, some of the, the teachings and so on that uh, that Pan receives. And there are kind of parallel examples. Um, an occultist, a, a British occultist uh, from um, you know, the early, active in the early 70s, named Leo Vinci, uh, talks about going on a sort of inner journey uh, mm-hmm. to visit Pan. And, and there again, he, he's tested. He has to go through a very long journey and um, overcome uh, the sense of, of fear uh, that Pan inspires when he first encounters him. So uh, so, so different, um, different writers, different, you know, sort of mystics or cult practitioners have, have, uh, uh, imagined Pan's ability to instill fear in different ways, but, um, it's often a step towards acquiring, uh, greater wisdom. There was an interview, well, a call in interview on uh, coast to coast AM back in 2010, where an occultist had talked about her coven trying to summon Pan one night and they were singing and they were dancing to try to summon him. And all of a sudden from the mountain nearby, they heard an unearthly howl and then the sound of flutes and they knew that it had worked, but they were far too terrified to actually do anything. So they just ran away. And as I was reading your book, I was thinking about that, that, that's really fascinating. You know, if, if you can manage to overcome that initial flight response, then 
you get the wisdom, but if you can't, then you're just kind of stuck running from Pan. And that's just interesting to me. It, it is. And, um, and I think what, you know, whatever we, we sort of make of these, these encounters, these experiences, there does seem to be, there does seem to be a kind of, uh, deeper wisdom in that you know that if we if we respond to experience if we respond to the the unfamiliar in a way that uh leads us to flee from it or perhaps even attack you know that sort of flight or fight response we're not going to benefit from it in any way we're not going to be able to to understand it so uh so there is a sense in which which overcoming that kind of basic primal response is necessary if um if we're going to learn really if we're going to understand something that is strange something that is unfamiliar to us i think that's also a lot of the way that people tend to react to the natural world in general you know you're you tend to be afraid of something that you don't understand but if you overcome that fear to face it then you have the potential for great wisdom and if you don't then you'll just continue running right yeah um whatever we can whatever we can learn from nature requires us to um, overcome some of those um, some of those basic responses we have you know we have to be willing to um, to be present and to uh, to experience to see to touch maybe even to taste you know um, if we're going to uh, gain gain knowledge gain understanding about the natural world I thought that the Piper at the Gates of Dawn chapter of Wind in the Willows really encompassed that mixture of fear and awe uh, and love, ultimately. And I was really surprised to learn that American copies tend to just excise that chapter entirely. Yeah, and I don't don't know how common this is, but um, I have seen a number of editions uh, in, in recent years where the chapter is simply taken out. Uh, yeah. It's, it's an interesting, uh, I mean, it's an interesting chapter to think about Graham as a writer because it was the last thing he wrote uh, for Wind in the Willows. And uh, so he, he added it on, but there is a sense in which it's not really integral to the plot. You know, it's, um, <laughs> it, it is, I mean, I think it's, it adds so much, like even, even thinking, you know, thinking about the animals in that book, it gives them this whole inner life, this kind of spiritual communion, um, this real, uh, this, this spiritual depth, I think that, that we don't otherwise have. But um, I think, again, the, the connections that Pan has in the popular imagination, the, the horns and the hooves with, with the devil. Uh, I, I think clearly some publishers felt that was troubling for some, for some readers. Um, and E.H. Uh, e. Shepard, who uh, illustrated the book back in the 1930s, um, he, he has a wonderful image of, uh, of the Piper, but he's rather devilish looking. He's got this sort of thin mustache going up. And um, I had never seen that image uh, until a few years ago, although I'd, I'd seen um, you know, an American edition of the book uh, uh, with his illustrations many times. So there, there's something, you know, from a certain point of view, there's still something threatening about Pan, something a little wild and dangerous. Uh, I was um, the most surprising thing in the book to me was reading about the idea that Sid Barrett of uh, Pink Floyd had encountered Pan. 
I actually bought my copy of Wind in the Willows the day that he died because I wow. knew that he was a big fan of that book and I wanted to read it myself. So hearing that he had you know, had this encounter was startling to me, but it also made a disturbing amount of sense for uh, yeah. his tragic story. Yeah. And um, so, you know, Sid, Sid Barrett, um, the original, the original singer uh, in Pink Floyd, um, you know, he suffered, uh, he suffered from mental illness. Uh, his mental illness was probably almost certainly aggravated by um, his drug use, particularly psychedelics. Um, and uh, in the sixties, his, uh, his manager, Alan King reported that uh, Pan had um, given a vision. He had appeared to Sid Barrett in a vision and had uh, opened up the cosmos and sort of shown him the inner workings of the natural world. Um, and if you, you know, if you've sort of read around Pan, um, that seems like a really dangerous thing to, to experience. Oh, yeah. um, he's seeing into nature. He's seeing how it works. And, um, you know, Alan King doesn't sort of make, make the connection, but, but even, um, even in a kind of superficial way, I think we, we can see that, that Sid Barrett as, as an artist, um, you know, was, he was a tortured man and he saw really deeply into things, maybe, maybe too deeply in, in so many ways. Yeah. Just, it it really reframed his work for me, listening to it, thinking about, you know, him having that sort of an experience because so much of his music is around the natural world and having these kinds of playful references to things. So it just was very strange. And it, it just really was reminding me of, you know, even Arthur Macon's work, um, you know, that, that mixture of like playfulness and deviousness, but also, beauty and fear it, it all really melts together well and i think that's just such a neat way to look through at his work yeah and um and with with Mackin too i mean pan pan really is the deeply tied to the inner workings of the universe and um contains secret the secrets of life really and of and of generation and um he uh he both encompasses and, and is beyond what we understand by sexual difference and, and so on. And, um, and, and is a source of terror to all who witnessed him um, in whatever form uh, in Mackin's story. Um, and that, and the Sid Barrett anecdote, um, Alan King doesn't record that, that Barrett was, was terrified. Uh, he, it, which is kind of interesting. He doesn't really record his reaction at all, but clearly this was a profound and transformative experience for Sid Barrett. And I think you're right to connect it with um, just the, some of the, some of the playful qualities in, in his music, but also that, uh, that sense of wonder and openness to the natural world as well. Yeah. The cosmic dimensions. Of it life. clearly affected him enough to change the title of his album to Piper at the Gates of Dawn. <laughs> Yeah, right. And, um, and again, I, I think I, I think I make this comment in the book, but it, but like Kenneth Graham, it's a very last minute edition, yeah. but Piper at the Gates of Dawn was going to be called Projector, which, which is kind of a cool name for, for an album, but Piper at the Gates of Dawn adds this whole other kind of dimension to it. Um, and there's no explicit reference to, to Pan or, or Wind of the Willows in the album itself, but the title, you know, makes that connection and um, it does 
does present the uh, the tracks, the, the music in a, in a different context, a different frame. Yeah, it also was kind of giving me a pause with Sid Barrett's first solo album being titled The Madcap Laughs, because that's also just a little bit reminiscent of Pan and the laughter that you know, accompanied him being brought to Olympus. Right. Yeah. yeah um, it's just this strange cast. <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. Um, Pan, Pan working his mischief once again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just was really fascinating to me but I, I absolutely loved your book um i was curious is there anything new that you're working on um i i think i'm uh i think i'm in a fallow period at the moment i'm thinking of uh, a few uh uh i have a few ideas in mind but i'm i'm just taking a, a rest after pan and taking some time to gather my thoughts and uh focus on a few other things um I can understand yeah. needing one after diving as deep as you did into everything. <laughs> you can't look looking into the secrets of nature. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Oh, thank you very much for your time. All right. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Paul for joining us to chat about Pan and to Hillary for reviewing his book. You can find the review in the book reviews section of the Folklore Podcast website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. The Folklore Podcast and The Book Club are independent podcasts aiming to collect and preserve folklore materials for the future, alongside other projects such as the Folklore Library and Archive and the Folklore Network. Find out more about all of our work on our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com where you can also join our free occasional e-newsletter for more in-depth news. Please tell your friends about our content and share our posts and episodes in whatever online spaces you use. You can follow us on Twitter at FolklorePod, and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. We try to avoid adverts in our shows to keep to the topics in hand, but this comes at a cost. If you want to help us continue, please visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com support, where you can find links to our Patreon page and other information. Thanks for listening. See you next time.